Welcome to the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Today we're going to continue looking at Gwendolyn Brooks. I've been taken with her of late, and it's wonderful as a scholar of poetry, someone who studies poetry for a profession and teaches poetry for a profession, it's fun for me to discover new poets. Now, I've known about Gwendolyn Brooks since college, perhaps even high school, but as I mentioned on an earlier podcast, I really have known only her most anthologized poems, and so I've been getting to know her early collections of late, and I've really loved what I've found. We talked about a poem last time called Still Do I Keep My Look, My Identity. It's a sonnet. It's an interesting sonnet which talks about the identity of the body. And we did an experiment where we did sort of a cold read of it and talked about it. I now want to fill in some of the background of this sonnet and actually look at another sonnet, which is just a couple poems later than Still Do I Keep My Look, My Identity, in Gwendolyn Brooks' first collection. So Gwendolyn Brooks was born in 1917 in Kansas, but the first year of her life, her family moved up to Chicago, and from then on, she was kind of a Chicago native, not born, but certainly raised and became not just a poet from Chicago, but a poet of Chicago. She really became one of the great voices of Chicago poetry, especially African-American poetry in Chicago for the rest of her life. And to this day, when we think about great literature from Chicago, Gwendolyn Brooks is one of our towering figures. The year of her birth is pretty important. 1917, as we've talked about before, was this momentous year in poetry because it's when T.S. Eliot publishes Proof Rock and Other Observations. So as Proof Rock and Other Observations comes into the world's consciousness and either changes poetry for the better or destroys poetry, depending on how you want to think about Proof Rock, also Brooks is coming into the world. She's going to be of a generation after Eliot. And the generation after Eliot, in one sense, I feel a little bit bad for because Eliot, Pound, Marianne Moore, Virginia Woolf, these modernist writers of the teens and 20s are really, really changing poetry in a way that the generation after them, anything they do in poetry won't look quite as revolutionary as what these modernists of the teens and 20s did. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore them. In fact, as we've spoken before of on this podcast, the lifeblood of literary criticism is looking maybe to the side and to the corner and just before and just beyond those books and works we already know and love and study to illuminate more of the past. The past is so easy to forget. So many poets, so many writers, so many lives are easily forgotten, especially in the glaring light of titans like Eliot and Pound. Gwendolyn Brooks herself was a blaring light, and I fear that she has gotten a little eclipsed in the last few decades of criticism. But there's hope. In fact, last year, a major biography of Brooks was published. I haven't read it yet. I look forward to reading it. It looks like Brooks's star is starting to shine a little brighter. There are a few collections of not just essays on her work, but poems reacting to her poems that have been published in the last couple of years, too. So I'm going to make a prediction. I think Brooks is on the rise again. Her critical star is rising again. And so let's hang out with her for the next podcast or two and see what we can find. So 
Brooks's first collection is published in 1945, and it's called A Street in Bronzeville. And it gives pictures of black life in Chicago, and especially black life in neighborhoods that Brooks herself grew up in. Often people see this as a sort of, here's what growing up was like for me. Now, Brooks is interesting because she can go from kind of Whitman-esque free verse, very long, rambling lines giving portraits of life, to very strict, formal structures, especially at the end of A Street in Bronzeville, we have this sequence of poems. Now, the sequence of poems is actually called Gay Chaps at the Bar. It, in fact, is about veterans coming back from World War II. And there's a subtitle to Gay Chaps at the Bar. The subtitle is a little quotation from a lieutenant who had served in the South Pacific. And the guys I knew in the States, young officers, returned from the front crying and trembling, gay chaps at the bar in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. So at the head of this sequence of sonnets, we have this picture, briefly, of these guys hanging out, having a good time at the bar, but they are very traumatized individuals. These aren't conquering heroes coming back from victory. These are guys who are crying, trembling, coming back to Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, having been in the South Pacific and experienced the trauma of World War II. It's helpful, I think, to see these poems not just as mid-century poems from a black Chicago perspective, but also poems that are trying to make sense of the experience of World War II and also make sense of them from the perspective of a woman who's watching these men come back. We don't have women fighting on the front in World War II, so this is a perspective of the civilian who stayed, who is seeing you know, her brothers, her friends come back from something that she herself couldn't have experienced. We get some of this in World War I as well, these poems by women trying to make sense of male experience. And Brooks's series of sonnets is quite challenging, quite difficult, as we looked at with Still Do I Keep My Look, My Identity. She's talking about the trauma that bodies experience, especially black bodies in war and trying to deal with one's traumatized identity. I want to look at a poem that's a few sonnets later in the collection where she takes up a more explicit theological theme. It's called God Works in Mysterious Ways. But often now the youthful eye cuts down its own dainty veiling, or submits to winds, and many an eye that all its age had drawn its beam from a book endures the impudence of modern glare that never heard of tact or timeliness or mystery that shrouds immortal joy. It merely can direct chancing feet across dissembling clods. Out from thy shadow, from thy pleasant meadows, quickly in undiluted light, be glad whose mansions are bright to write thy children's air. If thou be more than hate or atmosphere, step forth in splendor, mortify our wolves, or we assume a sovereignty ourselves. What I like about this sonnet is it is a sonnet. It has a strict meter and rhyme scheme. We have for the rhyme scheme, down its winds, drawn its dense, tacked shrouds, direct clods, meadows whose air, 
fear wolves selves. So we have some slant rhymes, but each end word is chosen particularly for the either complete or slant rhyme it makes with its related word in the sonnet structure. And in particular, the rhyme scheme of this sonnet is Shakespearean. It's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. So we have that wolves and selves at the end. It's a slant rhyme, right? A slant rhyme is something that poets, especially in the 20th century, played with a lot. You might not want to have shelves and selves. That might be a little too cute. Wolves and selves, it still has that vz at the end, but the o and e are different enough that it doesn't have the tidy cuteness of perhaps a rhyme that we would associate with Victorian or even Elizabethan poetry. Now, perhaps it's a matter of taste whether you prefer slant rhyme or full rhyme in your poems. And the modernists and those who come after them in the mid-20th century seem to really like slant rhymes. In the 80s, 90s, and today, a full rhymes, I think, are coming more into the fore. I, I would especially point to the work of poets like Tony Harrison, who I hope to talk about soon in this podcast in the 90s, who's going back to rhymes that almost seem a little silly, almost Dr. Seussian in how full and complete and everywhere they are. But for Brooks's part, she wants to give us a sonnet that doesn't call attention to its tidy sonnetness, but nevertheless has been has been very carefully constructed. Another one of the ways that she undercuts the perhaps cute orderedness of the sonnet is through using enjambment a lot. So these first two lines, but often now the youthful eye cuts down its own dainty veiling or submits to winds. If I would have just read that, it might not be clear that the line break is actually after down its. There's 11 syllables, but often now the youthful eye cuts down its own dainty veiling or submits to winds. And many an eye that all its aid had drawn its, line break after the third line, beam from a book endures the impudence. It's interesting, we have this 11th unstressed syllable with down its and drawn its. The its in each of those are an 11th unstressed syllable after a full iambic pentameter line. And in fact, she kind of carries over the iambic structure into the next line because instead of starting with an unstressed syllable, as you would in a line of iambic pentameter, in the second and fourth lines coming right after the down its and drawn its, she starts with a stressed syllable, down its own dainty veiling, drawn its beam from a book. There's a little bit of dancing around and playing with the structure of the metrics, but even with the variations, that unstressed 11th syllable and then stressed first syllable in the next line, even that she creates a pattern of varying these two lines and the next two lines in the same way. It's one of those wonderful things that you kind of can't get away from in poetry, especially if you're a master like Brooks is. Even your variations, even your stepping away from the form becomes its own tradition within your poem. So what's going on conceptually in this poem? Well, we remember this is the context of these guys coming home from war, especially black men in Chicago, but we also have in New York and L.A. It's kind of that West Coast, Midwest, East Coast. What are they experiencing when it comes to their relationship to God and to the religion of their childhood? That's a big thing that's going on in this poem, I think. But often now the youthful eye cuts down its own dainty veiling or submits to winds. Okay, so often now, 
the youthful eye cuts down its own dainty veiling. What is the dainty veiling that's being cut down? Well, in the title, we have this idea of mystery. God works in a mysterious way. Okay, so veil and mystery are often associated, especially in scripture. But we have at the beginning of this poem this idea that the youth are somehow trying to get rid of the veil. And it's not a veil that's inviting. It's not a veil that's overly large or imposing. It's a dainty veil. It's something that seems constricting, not in its oppressiveness, but in its perhaps quotidian cuteness. That which is dainty is not really something one would take seriously. Is the veil that separates us from the divine? Is the mystery of God just a dainty thing to be thrown away? Well, the youth are seeing it so. And perhaps with youth here, there's an implication. Those who have seen war and are coming back are now seeing it so. They cut down their dainty veiling or submit to winds. There's this idea, especially in the New Testament, that Paul says we are not to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Well, if the veil between us and God seems to us dainty and throwaway, that seems to be akin to or related to or of a piece with submitting to every wind of doctrine, especially new winds of doctrine. And many an eye that all its age had drawn its beam from a book endures the impudence of modern glare that never heard of tact or timeliness or mystery that shrouds immortal joy. This is a wonderful, wonderful section because it's about four and a half lines. That's just one single sentence that's spread over these four lines. And so the grammatical structure and the poetic structure are kind of working against each other and make you really have to take it slow. So let's take it slow. And many an eye, okay, we already had the eye that cuts down dainty veilings, it submits to winds. And many an eye that all its age had drawn its beam from a book. Beam is a weird word there. There's this medieval idea of the eye beam that when we see for medievals, it's not that light is reflecting from a light source off an object and our eye is receiving it. It's that our eye actually gives forth a beam of light which strikes an object and then returns to it. Okay, so the beam of an eye is that by which the eye sees. And many an eye that all its age had drawn its beam from where? A book. And you can't see this on the page, though I encourage you to go look it up. Book is capitalized. So, so right away, we have God works in a mysterious way. We have Pauline language in a second line. This book is scripture. This book is the Bible, right? Bible means book. It is the good book, the holy book. So if we gained, or if there's a group of people who gained all their age, their way of seeing from a book, they now endure the impudence of modern glare modern. Uh, how, how could she be more explicit than, I'm talking about how the modern world is affecting those who were raised with this biblical idea of God and his mystery. The modern world, especially the World War II world, and perhaps given the time she's living in, remember, civil rights hasn't taken place yet. This is, this is the 40s in Chicago. This is still a segregated world. And in fact, later in life, 
Brooks would write both in praise of Martin Luther King Jr. and also Nelson Mandela. She has a long poem in Montgomery, which I'd like to spend more time with, which is about the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and also her place in the civil rights movement. But this is all before that. When her second book comes out in 1950, she wins the Pulitzer Prize for it. It's awesome. It turns out that's the first time not just a black woman, but a black person had won the Pulitzer Prize, especially in poetry. It was dominated by Anglo men. And so she's really she's really seeing the modern world. It's not just a world where there's a war over there. There's still segregation here. So the modern glare that never heard of three things, tact or timeliness or mystery that shrouds immortal joy. Okay, so now we're back to this mystery. It first was a dainty veil, but now, no, the modern glare that's glaring in the eyes of these people who had taken their beam from books, from a book, from the book, that glare is now something that seems to have no idea, not just of tact or timeliness, maybe like polite ordered society, right? We have the disorder of war and of, and of world calamity. But it's never heard of that mystery that is beyond daintiness, that is the mystery that shrouds immortal joy. It merely, she goes on to say, can direct chancing feet across dissembling clods. It's hard for me not to see a picture of actual troops marching. But what kind of marching it's not marching unto victory. It's not onward Christian soldiers. It's chancing feet, feet that are almost there by accident, that perhaps are stumbling or just trying out by chance each new step. Chancing feet across dissembling clods. It's not the world's broad field of battle, as Longfellow said it almost 100 years before. It's dissembling clods. These are haphazard feet and haphazard ground. And that's all the modern glare can do. It can just direct chancing feet across dissembling clods. It's, it's a little bit of a bleak view, I think, of the minds behind the Pacific theater of, of World War II. All they can do, all, mod, all the modern world can do is say, yeah, go stumble over, the, over that ground. Not go win, but go by chance and dissembling. It's pessimistic, right? This is 1945. It's published, so it's written a little before then. This is, we haven't yet had great allied victory in the Pacific theater. And if, if anything, the victory is going to even be more devastating, I think, especially to someone like Brooks, than the unknowing of whether there's going to be winning. We, we should do a series sometime on poetry that, interacts with Hiroshima, that interacts with atomic power. This is not yet there. But there, there's this fear, I think, as there often is in poetry during a war, that we don't even know what we're doing there. But there's, I think, a larger critique in Brooks that the modern way of seeing things provides no way to have sure feet over ground that is significant. I think of Eliot's phrase at the end of Dry Salvages, our lives can nourish the life of significant soil. This is not significant soil. These are not lives that are nourishing it. Now we move into the final sestet, the final six lines of the poem, and things get even more 
interesting from here. Out from thy shadows, from thy pleasant meadows, quickly in undiluted light, be glad whose mansions are bright to write thy children's air. So these first three lines of the sestet is this calling on God, thy shadows. It's interesting. This is gay chaps at the bar. This is trauma and segregation and World War II. But Brooks decides not to use modern language for God. She decides to say thy. This is an address to the old God of tradition, perhaps the old God of the book, not some 20th century God in language, at least. Her language is not just Victorian, it's it's King James, it's, it's 17th century. So what does she want God to do? What's she calling on God to do? Out from thy shadows, from thy pleasant meadows. How different pleasant meadows, as a phrase, is from dissembling clods. Out from thy pleasant meadows, quickly in undiluted light. The modern glare seems to be a light that doesn't show much. God's light is undiluted here. Be glad whose mansions are bright to write thy children's air. It's an interesting way to say this. She's saying, be glad to write our air, to bring to our atmosphere, to our environment, a rightness, a reordering, reillumining of what we're experiencing with the modern glare. In one sense, she's calling on God, like, come here, but she's almost implying that God is doing this, and that she's then telling God how he should feel about doing this. But we know, given from the descriptions earlier in the poem, that she doesn't think that God has righted everything yet. So it's this odd telling God to come, invoking God, but then describing his pleasure in writing his children's world. It's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of Moses saying, God, don't destroy the people of Israel. How much, how much better it will be for your name among the nations to save us. Because if you, if you destroy us, then the other nations, God, will say, oh, that, that, that God couldn't keep his people in line and destroyed them. Who would want to worship him? Th there's this almost mosaic reasoning with God here that Brooks is doing. And then there's the, uh, I think, even more to drive home the Moses-like attitude. We have these last three lines. If thou be more than hate or atmosphere, step forth in splendor, mortify our wolves, or we assume our sovereignty, a sovereignty ourselves. So if thou be more than hate or atmosphere, it's just a great summing up in one line of 20th century fears about the divine. There's this idea, of course, in the modern world that the God of the Bible of traditional Christianity is just a God of hate and vengeance. Or maybe that God is an invention that people use to justify their hate, right? Especially if we think of the Nazi regime and their twisting of the Lutheran church. Bonhoeffer writes about this and laments about this a lot. And Bart too, this, this sort of co-opting the language of religion to justify hate and genocide. If thou be more than hate or atmosphere, if you're just nothing, if you're just our name for, you know, the heavens that are in the end just physical, once again, that's a modern glare way of talking about God. Oh, God is, you know, God is what what uncivilized people or, or unscientific people, it was their name for natural forces. If you're more than that, she says, 
step forth in splendor, mortify our wolves. Now, wolves is a great word here. We, we were just talking about Dante in the college program here at St. Constantine. The wolf for Dante is this image of appetite, of insatiable hunger that plagues man. And it's, and it's, a, it's an image of what's in man of man's own vice, mortify our wolves. But of course, in, in World War II, the wolves aren't just in man. The wolves are also the armies storming across the plains. The wolves are the Japanese bombing of Shanghai. The wolves are uh, the, the Nazi Wehrmacht. There are wolves inside man always, but there are wolves very much external and there are wolves closer to home. There, there are lynchings. There is segregation. This is just such a, I think, effective cry. It's the 40s. Things are bad for us, inside and outside. Come, God. Or, and I think this is maybe one of the most interesting moves in the whole poem, or we assume a sovereignty ourselves. If you're not coming, we're going to be in charge. But this isn't a sort of, you know, new atheist Richard Dawkins, like, oh, we don't need God. We can be happy and, you know, rule the world ourselves as long as we, you know, just think really hard and employ reason. No, no, no. The human sovereignty, she's already told us what human sovereignty gives us. It's the modern glare. It's chancing feet across assembling clods. It's the disillusioned age. I want to say that this is mosaic. It's, God, if you don't come help us, we're going to do it ourselves. And you know we're going to mess that up. This is a poem that feels very Old Testament to me, and I think that there's probably intention there on Brooks's part. This is a world of, of sadness, of trauma, of battle, and there's this, you know, how long, O Lord, feelings. It's very much the Psalms of David, but it also reminds me of more recent cries for God. I, I think of Gerard Manley Hopkins' terrible sonnets, which I hope to talk about here sometime, where he's he's really taken God to task. God, why are you letting these horrible things happen to me? Why does it even seem like you're doing them to me? And of course, the 20th century and all its, its cries of woe. I think we've seen today that Brooks is one of the great lamenters of the mid-century, especially uh, the mid-century American voice, the mid-century black voice. And she's doing it in the sonnet, which for hundreds and hundreds of years has been this little tight structure in which one can pour one's frustrations, not least of which frustrations with one's relationship with the divine. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. If you have any comments, questions, recommendations, disagreements, you can email us at poetrycorner at Thank you.